This Slate spoiler special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Maleficent, the new Disney film that's a retelling of Sleeping Beauty from the witch's point of view. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And joining me here in the Slate studio is Katie Rich from Vanity Fair. You are the Hollywood editor at Vanity Fair, Mm -hmm. now your fancy new title. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yes, I thought of you um, upon seeing this movie because it just seemed like something that that we could take apart in a fun way. so where do you want to start with Maleficent? I mean, everybody knows the Sleeping Beauty story, so I don't think we need to do a lot of a plot yeah. recapping. But let's talk about how it's framed and how it begins. And, oh, and most importantly, about, about Angelina Jolie's performance. Yeah, I feel like you kind of have to start with Angelina because she's, she's the reason this movie exists. I mean, the guy who Robert Schomburg directed it, he was the art director for Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, which is probably the actual reason it exists because it made a billion, like literally a billion dollars. And so they're like, okay, what other things can we make? Is Alice in Wonderland movie? one of the top grossing movies of the past Probably. Decade? It, it's, it's crazy successful. It's so bad. I know. It's, <laughs> it's so really terrible. bad. And so I went into this kind of bracing myself for like complete awful Alice in Wonderland chaos and was slightly pleasantly surprised but also kind of found that Angelina Jolie being the driving force of this makes the rest of the movie around her a little bit weaker. I don't know about Robert Stromberg as a guy, as an art director stepping up as a director. because Right, he, it's his first time directing yeah. and, and there is a sense that this, this, this film is it's owned by Angelina. Yeah, it's almost like she's the director rather than Robert Stromberg, which, you know, no offense to whatever he did with it, but she is such the driving force of everything that happens in this. But I will say another thing, and I should start off, I mean, usually I try to get kind of a general <laughs> sense of opinion before we get started, but I should say that I liked this a lot more than I expected to. I'm not sure that I'm going to have a great defense of it to mount in this podcast, <laughs> but I can talk about the things I liked. But what was your general impression? Would you send people? Um, I, li- I liked it more than I expected to. As, well, I was kind of ready to just, you know, laugh my way through it. I think there were definitely some moments that really fell apart for me. The first half of the movie is so heavy on voiceover and it really felt disjointed to me. It was kind of going from one CGI scene to another CGI scene and Angelina Jolie kind of prowling behind a curtain or behind some leaves and looking amazing. Um, but as it went on, I kind of embraced it more. And I saw that you wrote in your review that you wished your eight-year-old had been with you. And I, I do, really missed her. Yeah. yeah, I do think there's an element of this where I would want younger girls to see this. I mean, Frozen has kind of set the standard for revisionist fairy tales to give girl power, but Maleficent, as kind of awkward as it can be, has something to that that I can't quite quite right off all the things I thought were bad about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I feel like if that's the new cliched phase we're in in children's movies, <laughs> girl power, fairy tales, yeah. I can live with it for a while. Yeah, We've been exactly. in other cliched phases that were a lot more boring than that. Yeah, I mean, the prince in this movie, you know, who in Sleeping Beauty is the person who wakes her up and is the, you know, the beautiful chiseled jaw. He's such a non-factor in this. You could almost cut out the male characters from this movie and no one would notice, which yeah. is weird, but also, I mean, it says something. It's it's a more interesting tactic than most of the other fairy tales. Yeah, the focus is completely on a female relationship and we'll get to what that relationship is. So let's talk about how how it's framed as as we mm-hmm. as we set up. We don't see Angelina until probably about 15, 20 minutes into the movie or yeah. something because we go back in time and hear about the origin story of Maleficent, which I believe that's also the name of the in, in the 1959 Disney Sleeping Beauty, yeah, right? Same yeah. name. Which is kind of funny when they're trying to make her an awkward young girl who is named Maleficent. <laughs> not something they thought about when they named her that in the Sleeping Beauty uh, in the 1959 one. Yeah, there needed to be a clause in there somewhere about <laughs> why you would name your child Maleficent. Maybe it means something different in the Moors. So as we begin, she's she's on the Moors. She's living in a nest on her own up high in a tree. And she's essentially sort of shown as this super powerful, fierce flying girl, right? Yeah. Who just enjoys her wings and enjoys nature and flying through She has nature. these amazing, amazing, like not fairy wings, like eagle wings with like gold like brass tipped 
claws on top. They're incredible. Yeah, it was sort of like horned, scaled. Yeah, they are. They're beautifully animated, and yeah. I think the flying looks really great. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, we've seen a lot of movies with flying. Superheroes are constantly flying everywhere, but this actually gave a, a bird-like sense of flight somehow, yeah. the, the scenes where she's ascending up through the clouds. Um, so, so early in the film, when she's still being played by a kid, she meets this young man who will grow up to be her, her arch enemy, right? Mm-hmm. Grow up to be played by Charlotte Copley. And the two of them sort of fall in love. And then, what, who's doing the voiceover during all this time? Help me remember the beginning. <sighs> oh, well, it's this, the grown-up Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, this, that's the spoiler, I guess. The only thing you can spoil in this is that it's grown-up Sleeping Beauty doing the voiceover. I don't remember who the actor was. I don't know if it's anybody. But kind of explaining how they fell in love. They, they were friends, and then they fell in love. And then he had to kind of run off and become powerful it's kind of unclear what happens to him like he kind of becomes power hungry but we don't really know why and then yeah that's that seems truncated like maybe something was cut out but yeah, yeah all we need to know is that for some reason he's ambitious it's sort of a Macbethian right he's, yeah, he's sure. ambitious and he wants to take over and she is not Lady Macbeth <laughs> although Angelina Jolie would make a great Lady Macbeth yeah I wonder if she has ever been offered that role I don't or? know that, let's cast that when this is done <laughs> so they grow up and he becomes this ambitious king or aspirant to the kingship, I mm-hmm. guess, still at that point, who is told by the king. And by the way, I love that the king in this literally wears red robes with the white <laughs> trim with black polka dots. It's so great. There's actually a lot of art direction that is very classically fairy tale mm-hmm. that I loved like that. So the ermine robed king sends Stefan to kill his childhood friend, but he can't bring himself to do it, just like the huntsman in Snow White. Yeah. Right? And he stays his hand as he's about to stab her while she's under the spell of this potion, and instead cuts off her wings. And then this is a moment, I think, that we, we first sort of see the Angelina-ness mm-hmm. of Angelina, the moment that she wakes up from having her wings chopped off. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really brutal moment. And I've heard multiple people, and I don't know if you saw this, and it, compare it to as a rape analogy where, you know, he drugs her. It's, you know, he puts this, gives a her roofie, this potion. Yeah. yeah, exactly. She falls asleep while she's sleeping. He cuts out this part that's essential to her and kind of robs her of it. And she wakes up and she's devastated and kind of achy. You see her walking around, like, not really able to walk afterward. It's, it's very... I mean, I don't know about eight-year-olds. I don't know much about eight-year-olds, but I don't. I think that would be kind of hard to see as a kid to see your heroine really go through something that feels so painful. And Angelina does sell it that way. It, yeah, it's almost like it's, it's it's strangely not in keeping with the tone of the rest of the movie. But I liked that. It's mm-hmm. like a, a moment, like you say, like a rape scene or a moment from a war movie or something. Mm-hmm. You know, a moment of real physical trauma and violence, and and this sense that she is now going on as as a wounded, damaged being. Yeah, you know? which makes her turn toward evil, unlike the Charlotte Copley characters, <laughs> completely plausible. You can you can see that trajectory. Yeah, I mean, I get the feeling that they uh, they eventually regretted making her turn toward evil entirely because of a man, because it was a guy who jilted her and then, you know, hurt her. And she only does these awful things because of what this guy did. And I think they got further along and realized that this is more of a feminist movie than that. They really shouldn't have made that the inspiring or the, um, you know, thing that made the movie start. Um, and so they kind of turned away from that. And I think that's why a lot of Charlotte Copley stuff doesn't quite make sense. So it is like this weird kind of nugget at the center of it that makes it not feel as good for women as it should because she's a woman scorned in the beginning of all of this, which I kind of had a harder time getting over as the movie went on. There's something else, too, that sort of puts it, throws a wrench into the feminism of this movie. I mean, this movie is by no means, its primary goal is not to make any feminist statement no. whatsoever. But the other thing that I guess could bother you, although maybe as a parent it didn't bother me as much or something, but getting to the second half of the movie now and doing some more spoiling, because I didn't want to write about this in my review, is her growing relationship with Aurora, mm-hmm. with the girl who, who grows up to be Sleeping Beauty. And, you know, I mean, I suppose that you could make a feminist critique of this growing relationship by saying, oh, so it's just, you know, wanting to be a mother that humanizes her mm-hmm. and that it's only through motherhood, yeah. you know, that she can emotionally grow or change or something like that. But the fact that that relationship exists, I mean, that makes it richer than the original fairy tale, 
where there is no relationship between Maleficent and Sleeping Beauty. And I think you wrote this in your review that their relationship is really interesting. And it's really you, you get to that point where they start bonding and Aurora mistakes Maleficent for her fairy godmother because she's been kind of lurking and watching her. It's unclear why Maleficent takes so much interest in her. Like she kind of just starts to watch her as she's living with these fairies in the cottage in the woods. Right, right. The fairies that are bringing her up, who, by the way, are played, I think, really nicely by <laughs> Juno Temple, Leslie Manville and Imelda Staunton, yeah. arguably overqualified very for, overqualified. for playing fairies. But it, it, it's, it's kind of sweet because they are very old fashioned and they look they look really cute, all digitally diminished. Yeah, although kind of uncanny valley. I found them a little alarming, like when their faces are kind of fairy eyes and they're a little digital, but not totally. There's yeah. there something weird about that. Yeah, I mean, this, this whole movie dwells slightly in the uncanny valley because yeah. we haven't even mentioned that Angelina Jolie is digitally enhanced. I, I wonder how digitally enhanced she is. I know those cheekbones are prosthetics. At least some of them are. Like part of that is just something that was put on her skin to make her look amazing. And her eyes, sometimes they're contacts and sometimes they're digitally enhanced. But I mean, she's but aren't really... her eyes also digitally enlarged? I looked for Maybe. this online everywhere and I couldn't find any proof of it, but there was a lot of speculation about it. They, they look just slightly too big, a little bit towards Jap- Jap- Japanese animation, you know? That, yeah, that actually would make... I mean, she, I mean, she's striking as it is. Angelina Jolie al- already herself doesn't quite look human because she's stunning. But as Maleficent, she's just enhanced in all these ways that makes her look more sinister and also more interesting and kind of otherworldly. And there, I mean, there are shots where she looks like a, you know, a vamp from the 1920s. Like, you know, she has that black turban that she puts on her head. That, I mean, she herself is a special effect and probably one of the most effective ones compared to, you know, the creatures who float around in the moors who feel a little bit more like Alice in Wonderland or Avatar or something we've seen before. Yeah, no, her, I mean, we need to definitely get to what it is about her that's, mm-hmm. that cause she just so completely owns this role. I honestly think it's one of her better performances that I've <laughs> it might seen. Be. And it's And it's a pretty demanding role because she has to be pure, pure villainous. You know, something that we've seen, I feel like, all, every actress has that moment that they, they take on some archetypal villainous and play them. But she has to have this this villainous who softens mm-hmm. and who changes in the second half of the movie. And I thought she, she did that part really well, too. Katie, I want to pause for just a moment for a word from our sponsor. This week, the spoiler special is delighted to be sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code SPOILERS at checkout. Squarespace is easy to use, they offer a multitude of beautiful designs, and they have drag-and-drop content so you can easily pull things from all over the web to add to your site. They have 24-7 support with live chat and email. Their plans start at only $8 a month, and they include a free domain name if you sign up for one year. Squarespace is also a great thing to use for e-commerce because every site comes with its own online store. You can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, be sure and use the offer code SPOILERS so you can get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the spoiler special. And we thank Squarespace for their support. Okay, Katie, back to Maleficent. So let's talk about Elle Fanning, who comes in only in the second half of the movie and then suddenly becomes a major character. It's kind of yeah. a, it's an odd structural thing that happens. But I really found that the movie picked up when she came in. I also adore Elle Fanning. I think she's basically never put a foot wrong in any of her movies that I've seen. Did you ever see Door on the Floor? It's a complete sidebar. But no, but she was like a baby in that, wasn't she? Was she was tiny, oh. tiny, tiny. She must have been like five, four or five years old. I think her yeah. character was four. Maybe she was five. Anyway, uh, it, was, it was an amazingly demanding part for a child that small. And she was playing opposite Jeff Bridges and as his daughter and anyway she was incredible in that and ever since then I've had my eye on her yeah. so, so she appears as Aurora in the second half of the movie and uh, I, I just want to talk about that relationship and, and, and how it grows and sort of what it does with what you expect from a fairy tale. Well even before Elle Fanning shows up there's a scene with uh, Aurora as a toddler played by Vivian Jolie Pitt who is daughter of Angelina Jolie. <gasps> I wish I'd known. Oh yeah once you go back and look. It's... Wait a minute the baby that laughs in the crib? The ba- is... No the baby who she picks up who kind of comes up to her and like asks to be picked up because it was going to be another it was going to be an actress and according to the story 
uh, Vivian was the only baby who wasn't afraid of her in the full Maleficent makeup. So it was her actual child. It's this really cute scene. Oh, my God. That child is adorable. Yeah. They managed <laughs> to find all these really smiley children who don't seem fakey somehow. From yeah. the little baby that she curses to that little girl who I didn't know was Vivian to, um, well, and then Elle Fanning herself. Yeah. Somehow manages to play this role where the director was just behind the camera saying, laugh, be joyful. And yet it doesn't seem forced and strange. There was something about it that felt a little thin to me. Like the way that she's kind of laughing and like is so naive and it kind of did. And you have Maleficent telling her like, I can't protect you from the evil in the world. But there's really no point at which Sleeping Beauty encounters that. Like she gets put under the spell that makes her touch the needle, even though all the spinning wheels were supposedly burned. I don't really understand how they're still around. Um, and she kind of wakes up and she's still smiling and happy. And I know Elle Fanning is really captivating, and I think she does bring something to that. But there was a point at which I kind of, they gave so much to Maleficent, I kind of wish they'd given a little bit more to Sleeping Beauty, even though Elle Fanning can shoulder what she's given there. Yeah, yeah. She was given essentially an almost impossible job, like yeah. sit around and be sweet and giggle and make it compelling. And I think she, she did pretty well with it. So the only thing we really have to spoil, since everyone knows the story of Sleeping Beauty, is what happens with the sleep and mm-hmm. if you want to if you want to go with that and describe yeah well she's I mean she she so Maleficent tries to revoke the spell she can't so at, at some point Aurora kind of enters a trance is after she realizes that Maleficent is not in fact her fairy godmother but the person who put this curse on her she runs away it's kind of like a classic rom-com moment like you've been tricking me this whole time I you know it's like a like she's all that but between Maleficent and Aurora uh, so she goes into this trance she pricks her fingers she's only asleep for maybe 45 minutes like it's a very short spell compared to what it is in the fairy tale and so the three fairies kind of pick up the prince who Aurora has had this chance encounter with and he's this cute completely nondescript guy uh, played by Brenton Thwaites who I'm sure is talented but in this movie is kind of intentionally not doing anything so fairies bring him in they have her they have him kiss Aurora because they think he's true love kiss it doesn't work and then Maleficent is in there and she regrets putting her to sleep she has so you know it's uh, I feel like this, this scene has also happen a couple times where there's like the deathbed confession and you talk to the person who you think is dead and then they miraculously come back <laughs> because your love affects them. Uh, so it's Maleficent's kiss that brings Aurora back to life. And then there's a big action scene to get them out of the castle with the Question dragon. Question about Maleficent's kiss, just mm-hmm. to pause. Do you think that that was straight up stolen from Frozen? Or, oh. did, or was this already in production at that point? It, that's what mystifies me is I know, I mean, Frozen animated movies take forever to make and Disney made both of these movies. They definitely knew that both of these movies are going to end that way. And I can't really figure out why they didn't change course on one of them to make it different but they're both ex- and it's exactly the same thing except with you know a faux mother-daughter relationship as opposed to sisters right I mean I don't, I don't think I would necessarily have seen that coming if Frozen hadn't just been such a big deal yeah. in the culture the fact that it would be Angelina Jolie's kiss that would wake her up yeah um, I thought the action sequence the action sequences in the movie before then are pretty awful I think I mean I saw it in 3D which made it really hard to see what was going on and you've got things flying around and a lot of chaos instead of movement but the action scene at the end where um, we haven't even mentioned Sam Riley who is kind of Angelina's sidekick. He's a man who can turn it or bird who can turn into a man and he turns into a dragon at the end. I thought that part was pretty good and actually kind of ended the movie on a stronger note than I expected it to. But the timing of that action was a little bit strange because this this wake up kiss that we were talking about, which of course ends the the, the classic fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Probably happens half an hour or so before the end of the movie. Well, yeah, you got to send him out with an action scene. <laughs> and then, yeah, a lot of what, what rolls on after that has to do with fighting Charlotte Copley, who now we have to talk about him. I yeah. mean, that part is just terrible. I feel for him because it's a horrible part, but he also really, really overplays it. And I just feel like it's been a very fast descent for Charlotte yeah. in the popular imagination. Like, he was such an exciting actor in District 9. And in everything he's appeared in since then, Elysium is the only one I can think of. But he's the seems old boy to remake. Be Oh, I, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. He's, oh, he's awful yeah, in that. He's awful. He seems to be the new go-to, I don't know who you'd even compare him to, just camp villain. Yeah, it's it's not a good part, and he doesn't do well with it. And like I was saying earlier, I do think they 
had to restructure the movie, maybe not because of him, but because they didn't want that character to matter as much as he does in the end. So, yeah, when they, when she's fighting him at the end, you're just like, what a waste. Just take Aurora and get out of there. Like, both of them are more powerful than him, really. And they, the, all the scenes, through, we haven't mentioned these, but the scenes all the way through the movie where we keep revisiting him as he slowly becomes obsessed with the chopped off wings that he has in a glass case and mutters to himself and is basically slowly going insane. It's yeah. just, who cares? We don't like this character. We do not care about his mental decline. There's also a moment. So he learns early on in the movie, we see him learn that iron burns fairies because when he's a kid, his ring burns Maleficent. And he spends all this time trying to figure out how to fight her. And then like years later, it's like, get all the iron workers. <laughs> it's like, what are your weapons made of if not iron? Like it's everywhere. I could not figure out how he didn't think of that. Oh, I'm glad that you mentioned here. There's one big plot hole, and this may just be that I spaced out for a moment. How does she reattach the wings at the end? Oh, he's, they, he's got they, the chopped off wings, and then somehow she goes into the room with the glass case, and they like readhere to oh, her like body Aurora, magically. Aurora knocks the case over, and the wings—it's like Iron Man suit that flies to meet him, and the, the wings just show up and reattach. I have—I mean, I don't know. So what's the only problem so all those years is that the wings were in a different room. Yeah, in a glass <laughs> cage. I don't know. That's another one of the things where you're like, they got to that point in the script, they're just like, ah, it happens. Just, just <laughs> go with it because she looks amazing once the wings come back on. So who cares? Well, and you have to end with her flying, of course. Yeah, and then like you know, she gets rid of the robes. So she's got like a Catwoman suit going on, and she's got the robes on. She, I mean, the she Catwoman looks suit bothered me a tiny bit because it was so anachronistic. It I mean, was a the whole weird. movie is is essentially set in classical fairy tale period medievalish costume, you know. And yeah. so for her to suddenly go kind of Catwoman at the end seemed yeah. a little bit like a nod to the exact kind of movie that it's refreshing that this movie isn't. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, I mean, she looks spectacular, so there was a way that we, we see why they wanted to do that. But she's had those great robes and, like I was saying, like the kind of old uh, vampy turban. So it is kind of disappointing to be like, oh, Angelina Jolie and like a skin tight skin. Yeah, well, I mean, if they wanted there. to show off her body, she could have had some sort of a fairy thing where like leaves were clinging to her body, <laughs> bikini style or something. You know, there's other there's other revealing costumes that yeah. don't have to be such a boring goth black cat suit. Yeah, that's but, true. Um, all right, so I think we should end just talking about Angelina because, I mean, my review of this movie, which was way more positive than I expected in spite of all of its weaknesses, partly had to do with this, with its sort of fairy tale sweetness and that it does have a classic medieval feeling and nice production design. But basically, it is completely Angelina's show. And I just wanted to briefly kind of celebrate her, her presence in this movie yeah. and how well it corrals her Angelina Jolie-ness. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that this is, I mean, it's the last role she's scheduled to play right now. And she's been directing. I don't know how much acting she's going to do going forward. So for this to kind of be the last role that she plays, it does seem to kind of corral everything that's been special about her as a movie star. She's got this power. She has the power as a, as a star to be able to get this movie made. And, you know, she's got, I think, three kids, and uh, three daughters under the age of 10. You can see why she wants to get this movie out there and to be this really rounded character who, like, is mean but is sweet. And she's kind to, of mischievous, too. Yeah. There's a kind of period in between being mean and being good at the end where she is watching the little girl grow up and kind of playing tricks on the fairies and kind of, yeah. And I like that part too. Yeah. Although that was another part where the script, I just didn't quite get why she was there, why we were getting from A to B and how she, how the, how those transitions happened. Angelina plays all of them really well, but the script doesn't quite follow and like, tell you how those changes are happening but like I was saying you don't it doesn't matter because you like watching her and she's so powerful and she's so fascinating she's so stunning to look at but also acts everything really well it's I mean you can't really imagine anyone else playing this part yeah I think I guess it's because it has to do with I mean, it's almost like the weaknesses of the script play into her power because you don't know, for example, how she becomes the queen of her entire kingdom in <laughs> between wings, in I between guess. growing up. And essentially, it just sort of seems like, well, who wouldn't want Angelina Jolie yeah. to be in charge, right? Yeah, yeah. And you really do it, the the subtext of her public persona really plays into this, like knowing her as a mother and knowing her as a you know humanitarian and as someone who you know was Lara Croft. Like it all plays into this one role, and she's really canny about using that and making that part of this performance, even if the script kind of doesn't have anything else to say. 
All right. Well, Katie, thanks for coming in and help me helping me grasp the, to me, amazingness that is that is Angelina in this movie. It's not getting such a great reception in general. It doesn't seem like critics are loving it. I mean, I, I wouldn't call it a good movie, but I also think it's interesting enough to talk about like this mostly because of what she does, which is, you know, in itself a kind of victory. I think conceived as a children's movie, I, I actually would call it a good movie. I'm, I am excited to take my daughter to it. Well, I mean, everyone's been watching Frozen on a loop for six months, so it's probably time to have something yeah, else. Yeah, we need to get some new pop fairy tale. <laughs> culture into our heads. All right. Well, please come back and spoil another movie soon. This is fun. Too. Our engineer is Andrea Salenzi. Our producer is Chris Wade. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.